Here we go, everybody. Welcome to the show. My guest today is an amazing human being. His name is Dr. Bruce Zoran. He's one of the top orthopedic trauma surgeons on the planet and uh, basically just a mindset ninja. Uh, so when you listen to this, as I usually am when I speak to him, uh, continually blown away by just how open to opportunity he is, how he's just always one of those glass half full kind of guys. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. And so without any delay or further ado, here's Dr. Bruce Zoran. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, Jerry. Go and run, love. All right, here we go. I am here with Dr. Bruce Zoran. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, thank you. So I know who you are, and I'm I'm always impressed when I talk to you, but because I know who you are. So for the folks listening who don't have a clue who you are, uh, they've been li- living under an orthopedic rock. Who who are you, and what do you do? Uh, well, you know, probably the best way to sum up how I feel about me or who I am is uh, a little, a little, uh, croquet thing. One of my nurses would make for me whenever I would say something memorable. Uh, But I remember one day saying, I'm just an average guy trying to do a better than average job in a less than average world. Right. Um, I, I, uh, I'm a guy who was, was raised by, uh, you know, a family of immigrants and um, all educated and professional and education was important in our family. So, uh, uh, born in London, UK, raised in Ohio, moved to the South, probably won't go back. Um, <laughs> got a family, some kids, um, and uh, lots of regrets uh, and a few, few things I'm proud of, but uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I specialize in trauma. So, what I do is I basically, I'm, I'm the doctor you never want to have, because if you wake up and you see me, that means you're in bad, bad shape. Right. Um, but, uh, and we say we take care of, we, we fix broken humans. I guess that's what I do. I'm the doctor that fixes broken humans. And you know, like you, you say it in that way. And, and one of my favorite things about you, like, I look, let's be real. Like you were one of the top orthopedic trauma surgeons, like on the planet today. And also probably one of the most humble people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And so, but you know, I've even, even hearing some of the testimonials of patients, you know, you take stuff like a foot, for example, that's little more than powder left inside of a, a skin casing and you rebuild functional feet like that, you know, doing that for people is a big, big deal. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, it brings out the MacGyver in you, but it's also, uh, it's, it's sort of humbling because I realize I can never give them what God gave them, what they were born with. And, uh, and a lot of it basically is trying to help that person adjust to their new life because their, their life will never be the same. And uh, I know you know this, as do probably every veteran in military person who's been out there who's seen combat. 
you know, or anyone who's faced death or had a crisis in their life, um, you know, their life will never be the same. And so a lot of times, I, you know, I, I'm not only just trying to put a foot together because I know it'll never be the same, uh, but you kind of try to come to this compromise where uh, you bring their expectations to something that's reasonable and then help them realize that, you know, they're still going to have a good life and be happy again, even though their foot's not going to quite be exactly what it was before. And, you know, you and I have had some conversations in the past and recently where, you know, there's some, some obviously some mutual respect, you know, um, from our, our separate career fields, mine being a former career and yours is still your current as far as like, they're both high stress professions. They're both, there's a lot riding on your ability to perform optimally. But what I want to ask, everyone's different. Um, when you get into that spot where you're looking at that trauma patient and you're seeing what you've really got left to work with, and you know that it's what you do next is going to touch so many facets of this person's existence. How do you get in the right mindset to make that happen? You know, I don't know. Um, it's, it's funny because some things come naturally, uh, you know, and while other things are very unnatural for me. And, and I'll tell you, I, as we were talking before, you know, I, it's like meditation. Uh, a good friend of mine who taught me how to meditate, you know, who helped really helped me in a, when I was in a difficult place in life. He taught me body-centered meditation. And, and he said, you know, when you're focusing so intently uh, that, you know, you feel things, you, you hear things, and you concentrate, that's a form of meditation. Just, for example, when you drive and just feeling your hands on the steering wheel, you know, that's a form of meditation. He goes, you know, when you're in surgery doing something and you're so focused, you're really in a meditative state. And uh, I'll tell you, that's, I get more nervous, as I told you before, speaking in front of a room of 20 strangers. Right. Uh, and that stresses me out more than if I get somebody who's got four mangled limbs and their blood pressure's low and the trauma surgeons are trying to keep them alive and I'm trying to help trauma surgeons do stuff. It's like, it just comes naturally for me. And, uh, and you know, I don't, I, the adrenaline kicks in and, uh, you know, whenever I do traumas later at night, you know, my wife will tell you that I come home, it takes me two or three hours to slow down because you're just worked up like that. But I, I don't know what it is. And, you know, I think there's Some something to that so because, I mean, I, I, you know, you're talking like I do that thing that you do that makes you nervous. Like that's where I'm, I'm centered. Like if you put me in front of 300 people, I'm, I'm fired up. Let's do this. You know? And I, everyone who's like me, whoever, everyone who, who runs their mouth on a stage now for a living, here's what you just said. And the notion of what you do is horrifying. That's like, <laughs> You know, I can talk and, and <laughs> it's okay. You're putting people back together. And I, I just think, you know, it's something we kind of discussed a little bit, not too in depth, but there's some, there's some common thread there where we find clarity in chaos sometimes. Yes, absolutely. There, there's that, that's a, probably a great way of putting it that some people can find clarity in chaos, whether it's in the battlefield and the operating room, you know, in the boardroom, you know, or even let me tell you every day in my house with four kids, it's, it's all I do is try to decrease the chaos and control the entropy unsuccessfully. But, you know, right. there's, there's a moment of clarity in there where you just, 
accept what's happening around you and you just deal with it. And I think it goes back to what you were saying that you're, you and that friend of yours talked about when it came to meditation is he said the word when you're intently doing this. And I think part of that clarity through chaos comes from your intentions showing up. You know, you've got a why when you got there as far as what you hope to achieve. And so the chaos just turns into to background noise at a certain point, because that intentionality of why you showed up is what you really focus on. Even with the kids. I mean, I've got four myself and what you're saying, that intentionality can marry up with pragmatic acceptance in a beautiful way sometimes. Yes. Yes. That that was very eloquently stated what you just said right there. Uh, Yeah. It just, it kind of happens, you know, it's, it's all, I'm also left-handed. Maybe that has something to do with it. Um, yeah, Overcoming obstacles that, uh, since I, birth. I had a girl, <laughs> you know. So uh, you know, they, my girlfriend, she had a, at the time she had um, her degree was in organic chemistry, and what she told me is that a majority of the drug designers who have to visualize these these molecules in three dimensions were left-handed, and uh, left-handed people obviously they they have more right hemispheric dominance. And things come naturally to me that uh, I, I look at others and say, you didn't get that. Whereas I'll make some stupid mistakes and people look at me and say, you're a doctor and you did that, <laughs> you know, or you're an engineer and you made that kind of mistake. So I, I think there's a, there's some type of, you know, I don't know, preferentialness to our skill sets, you know? Uh, and I think somehow whether our career finds us or we find our career, you know, it's a matter of listening to your, the signals in the world and, you know, where, you know, your, your maker and the people around you lead you. And some people fight it and they're, and they're unhappy, you know, and, they, and they're never successful. Whereas those who are willing to accept that maybe this wasn't my first choice, um, but I'm pretty good at this and maybe this is what I should do. You ultimately find the grat- gratification and happiness if, if you kind of follow your life as it was intended to go. Well, you know, your story that you share with me about how you wound up going down this path towards this career, I think is a great illustration that because medicine wasn't your first or even second choice, right? No, no, not even close. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, in fact, my father was a physician and I never saw him. He was always gone. I mean, I, I, you, you might say that even though I have a great father, I love him to death and he is, he and I are very, very close. But when, when I was young and growing up, he was in his training and trying to make a career and he was never around. My younger brother saw my dad a lot more, but you know, I basically grew up in a fatherless home in many ways, even though he was very physically present and, and I knew he was always around and I feared him and I, he had expectations. Right. Um, but since he was a doctor, I said, I don't want to be like that. I'm never going to go into medicine. Why would anybody do that? God, you work all the time. It's horrible. You know, so I did everything I could to stay out of medicine, believe it or not. In, in fact, that made me a bit rebellious. And, you know, that's, you know, as, as we went through the story before, kind of somehow got me to where I'm at, but uh, yeah. I think, I think I want to draw that one out because I think it's such a, it is the, the Genesis moment for what would happen next. It was after high school, you decide musician, right? Yeah. And, and you wind up like, yes. Talk, talk through that for, just cause it's funny one. And two, yeah. I think it is one of those, I think it was probably, and there's several more, 
knowing your story, but that was like the first aha that you had, I think. Yeah, yeah it was. So, you know, my parents being educated, you know, my, uh, my dad's super smart, my mother's super smart, and they were both sent to the uh, UK to study. So, of course, you know, as I said, education and culture was very important to them. So time comes, I'm a 12-year-old kid, and they say, you need to play an instrument. You know, what do you want to play, piano or violin? <laughs> All right. Now, now, remember, you know, I, uh, an immigrant kid with a funny name, you know, in a, in a world where I was very uncool, trying to be cool, you know, guitars, you know, drums, bass, everything. Yeah, violin and piano, really? <laughs> so, so they much. made me play the violin. And uh, I, I regret not doing better because, you know, now you have Jean-Luc Ponte and you have Yo-Yo Ma and you have these, you know, wonderful musicians. But I, I hated it, boy. It was dorky and people <laughs> made fun of me. It wasn't until we moved that my neighbors were musicians. And I said, hey, you know, they had a guitar and a bass and a, and a drum set. I said, hey, you know, Dad, you know, the bass guitar has four strings just like a violin. And, and I, it took me six months to convince my parents <laughs> to switch from violin and, and I only chose bass because I thought that was my conjuring art of the deal to get them to switch from violin to another four string instrument. Right. Guitar, long hair, rock and roll. No way. no way. So anyway, I'm a bass player. Right. And this is the seventies, right? Rush, Kiss, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, you know, et cetera. Long hair, you know, everyone's partying and doing, you know, I, I, I will, I will not admit, neither, I can neither confirm, confirm or deny, or deny I right. things, but I can tell you that, <laughs> You know, but, you know, in the 70s, we were playing. So I loved it. You know, so we were in a band and, uh, you know, I'm going. Meanwhile, my friends who were uh, all smoking and drinking and failing out of high school, I'm in all honors classes, AP right. classes. I basically had first year of college under my belt before I finished high school. And, you know, I'm sort of walking this line between the nerds and the geeks and the, and the cool guys. And music is kind of what kept me cool. And, uh, and I loved it. And I wanted to be a musician. I said, this is what I love. And, and that, again, it was a form of meditation for me because I would be so focused. I would get into this sort of zone where I couldn't, I didn't know what was going on around me. And it right. was just beautiful. And I never, I never learned how to read music. I learned by ear. So I, I would go and listen to a song. I'd come home, I'd be able to play it, right? Again, a left-handed trait probably. It was one of those right atmosphere things that, you know, we have. And, I, and, and my dad says, you're going to go to college, right? You know, you're the son of a doctor and you know, you have to have a career, you know, at least be a lawyer or a dentist or a doctor too. And I'm like, no, dad, I don't think I want to do that. I think at I least be one of these really high functioning professions. These are your list. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. He goes, yeah. You know, if, if you keep doing this, you know, back then, you know, they had gas station attendants that would pump your gas. Right. right? Uh, in, which was temporary jobs. You I mean, most people right now don't even can barely remember when, they clean your windshields and pump your gas and everything. He goes, yeah, you know, he, he would use that in a derogatory way. You know, I tell my kids, you're going to go live under a bridge if you're right, not careful. Right. right. So I try not to cut down any, any uh, occupation, but my dad back then, you know, he says, yeah, son of a doctor is not going to do that. So I get, I apply to college. I get into a, the, the local college just because I, you know, accepted it only to keep them happy. And uh, 18 years getting out of high school comes around. My friends and I, he goes, hey, man, let's go to Atlanta and, and play music. My dad says, you leave this house, you lose my name, you never come back. <laughs> what did I do? What does any 18-year-old do? Right. <laughs> you do the exact opposite of what your dad tells you, right? Uh, <laughs> and so I left. And uh, 
we drive down to Atlanta of all places where I'm at now. Uh, and, uh, it was this guy, he was the drummer, Jeff and his brother, who's a guitar player and a couple other guys, five guys living in a two bedroom apartment. And I'm a low man on the totem pole. So I sleep on the floor. <laughs> of course. We're practicing every day. Uh, we basically have little Kings beer, uh, and, uh, bread and chili. That was base. All we made, we made a big pot of chili, got a loaf of bread and beer. That is great for your insides. I made about $50 a week. Yeah. Uh, 50 bucks a week. So we made 50 bucks a week. And after about, came around August, middle of August now. And I'm thinking, God, you know, I don't have any girlfriends. I don't have any money. (laughs) Sleeping on the floor with five other guys who are all getting, you know, all the attention. I'm like, I'm not sure this was such a good idea. (laughs) Uh, So I I made this bold move I call my mother up first saying, Mom, right. um, what, what's going on? How's that? How's dad? He goes, Oh yeah. You don't want to talk to him. You know, he's done with you. And, and, and I said, you know, I'm thinking of coming back. She goes, give me a week or two to work on him. I mean, that's how bad it was. <laughs> so a couple of weeks later, I'll be long story short. I come back with my tail tucked and go to school. And basically I say, okay, I'll do whatever you say, sir. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that was, that was a good learning curve, you know, but, and, and I think so many people, cause you say tail tuck between your legs. So many people who are in that scenario would really get a defeatist attitude about them and say, well, you know, I can't do anything I want to do. I can't chase any dreams I'm after. And I think, you know, you, you, you have some innate intentionality and some innate pragmatic acceptance about you. I think just as a human being, I think when you were put in that situation, you, you immediately said to, to yourself, Okay, I'm going to make the best out of this. Yeah, and, and you know, part of it, I think, is uh, I, I was really interested in psychology. And so in both in high school and in college, I would pick up books on psychology and learn about Pavlov and Freud and Carl Jung. And I was fascinated to understand why are people the way they are, you know, and I started with child psychology and you know, learn about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I realized that we all have, have psychological characteristics of personality disorders, whether, you know, we're borderline or sociopath or narcissistic or OCD or some type of neurosis, you know, we, we tend to functionally adapt. And I think for me, you know, I needed, I needed to accomplish something because I think I was seeking the validation and approval of my father, right. Who was never around. Right? I was, right. I was always expected to get high grades and, you know, he was successful and, you know, he instilled that sort of uh, uh, personal accountability in me and hard work. Um, and, and somehow by the grace of God, you know, I, I ended up not going the wrong way because half of the friends I grew up with are probably dead or in jail. Sure. And the other half became successful. And I asked myself, why, why am I an orthopedic surgeon and my other friend very, you know, he was an army ranger a, you know, real, you know, like you guys are, and he was in Granada and he's very successful business. The other guy's a successful person. The other guys got into drugs and crime and everything. Why did we succeed and not fall into the rabbit hole? And why did the other guys fall into that rabbit hole? So back to your point of saying, you know, having an intention, some type of a drive of intention of not wanting to fail and finding something else that we could do and, and I had no idea what I want to do in college. I mean, I started generic, you know, engineering, and that's when I wanted to be a fighter pilot. 
you know, right. Navy came around and I'm like, damn, it would be cool to be a pilot, you know? And so I'm getting ready to sign up for the Navy and like, Oh, you wear contacts. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. You can't fly. Right. Go figure. Right. And another genetic imperfection that I have that, that prevents me from doing what I want to do. Uh, so you know, and I, I think was a little bit lost in college. I have to admit, but you, you say lost and I, I don't look at it that way. Um, because like we, you just really established like that vein of intentionality in getting somewhere with your life, whether it was, you know, influence from parents or just seeing the world and knowing like, I don't necessarily want to go that way. You weren't lost. What I think when I hear even how we go from engineer to orthopedic surgeon, um, is you're not going to marry yourself to anything that you don't love. And what I love is how you go from the engineer piece to orthopedic surgery was from martial arts in some ways. Yes. Yes. So, you know, martial arts, I was always physically strong for my size. I'm not, I'm not a big guy, you know, you know, I'm, you know, barely over five, six, five, seven on a good day. You know, I probably started up around five, eight, stunted my growth. And as I got older and shrunk more, you know, probably down to five, six now. And, you know, so I was never that big guy. That's why I thought fighter pilot because you fit into the cockpit, right? Less right. G-forces to your brain, you know, all that stuff. Anyway, I was wrestling and with my buddy, Mike Major, who was, was the Army Ranger. And he and I used to wrestle all the time. He'd whip my butt all the time. You know, he was 20 pounds heavier than me. But wrestling taught me, you know, which is what they teach you guys too, is you never give up, right? Right. You know, and I remember him telling me afterwards, you know, when he was going through Ranger school, right? Uh, uh, and he said, I know they're not going to let me die. So I'm just going to keep going. Exactly. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. If they, if people do die during training, but in his mind, he goes, the, the, the military is not going to let me die. So I'm going to keep going. And he and, and he said that a lot of that sort of uh, endurance of mentality came from wrestling and so forth. And so when I went to college, you know, I started doing martial arts. I wrestled and did martial arts and I love martial arts because, you know, I was pretty good at it. You know, I was flexible. I could do the splits. I could kick over my head. I advanced fairly quickly. You know, I was a good sparer, even though I wasn't very big, I was fast, you know, so I was going up against, that's when weight wouldn't matter as much because in wrestling, you know, if they can get their hands on you right? and, you know, they can usually get you down. But if, if, if you can get away from them, you know, and strike and go, strike and go, you know, you have a chance, you know, cause I'm not six five. <laughs> so in martial arts class, uh, the instructor, I think he was, um, uh, Dr. Sechner was either Lithuanian or Ukrainian background, big man, super smart, very stoic. And it was Tang Soo Do. It was a sort of form of, uh, it was Korean style, very close to Taekwondo, but Tang Soo Do, very strict. And he taught a class called biophysics, you know, is the entry level biomedical engineering class. And one of my best friends who I told you about, who was sort of the designer behind CDMA technology and Qualcomm, he and I were in the class and, and Farouk said, you know, Bruce, you should, you should consider taking his class. You know, I heard it's a pretty good class. So I took his class and holy smoke, that was another pivotal event in life where, you know, I'm studying to be a mechanical engineer. And all of a sudden he starts talking about the physics of the heart, physics of the, uh, the neural system and the physics of bone structure and muscles and how it worked. And basically it was applied engineering to the human body. And, and, and it was so interesting to me combined with 
what we were physically doing in, in karate class, where we were actually putting to work the physics and engineering of the human body that I became completely enamored with uh, the biological aspect and, and said, you know, maybe I should become a biomedical engineer and go to med school. Well, my dad was the kind of person who made me work. So he basically, when I went to college, unlike a lot of kids who got everything funded, people say, oh, your dad's a doctor. He put you through school. Uh -uh. <laughs> Goes back to when I was 14, you know, my neighbors would basically get $50 for every A they got in, in high school. And I went to my dad and said, hey, how come I don't get an allowance? Can I get money for, you know, every A? He goes, you're not getting an A for money. You're getting it because it's the right thing to do. And if he wants some money, go get your butt across the street and get a job. So he had me working for myself starting at the age of 14. And in college, he basically said, you go to work and get a job and you save up money. You take out loans. What you can't cover, I will help you with. So I had to have a full-time job and I had to take out student loans and then he paid the rest, which was quite a bit. I'm very grateful for what he did because uh, the loans would not have covered as much. It would have taken me longer. So my point being, at the same time, I went and worked in, at, at the Cleveland Clinic in a program for artificial hearts. Uh, and what they did is they took small cows, calves, and they had a research program where they would put artificial hearts in these cows to see how they work. And right now, the LVAD, which is miniaturized to the size of your palm, was something as big as a volleyball. Uh, and and uh, that technology was being developed. So what I was, I was an intensive care nurse for cows, bullshitting, basically. You call bull, <laughs> bullshitting, put, take, put one letter in there, you'll get right. what I really did. Um, so from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., uh, you know, I'd work all through the night, 12 hours, taking care of these cows. It was fascinating. I mean, I watched surgery. I wanted to be a heart surgeon. I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, I heard about DeBakey and, you know, heart surgeons were the gods. They were the king of the medical empire. Yeah, the new, the new medical gangsters. Oh, man, they were great. Well, the, the guy I worked with, his name was Buzz, and he was another, you know, he was a drill sergeant. He used to make me do so much at nighttime. He trained me, and he basically, he wanted to be a heart surgeon, too. I said, yeah, so what's it take to be a heart surgeon? You know, I'm in college. You know, I'm thinking of going to medical school. You know, I want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon because that's the, you know, that's like the, that's like the rangers. That's the special forces of, of medicine and surgery. Right. He goes, well, you got to do a night of every other night on call. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you know, you go to morning, you go, to, you go to work Monday morning, you work all day Monday, all day Monday night, all day Tuesday, you go home Tuesday night, you get some sleep, and then you do the same thing for two days. And again, every other night you're on call. I said, how long do you do that for? He goes, oh, about 10 years. <laughs> I'm thinking, wait a minute, 10 friggin' years of every other night in the hospital? You've got to be kidding me. That blew my bubble. I'm right. Like, oh, <laughs> man, I don't think I can be a doctor. What am I going to do? I can't be an or a cardiothoracic surgeon. And here I am, you know, biomedical engineering, trying to get into med school. And, and, and oh, my God, I can't be what I want to be because I don't think I want to do that. I mean, that's 10 years of misery. So all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm looking for something else to do, looking for something else to do. I needed a senior project in engineering. I go and I say, you know, what, what can I do, you know, in engineering? They, the guy says, go, um, go look up this guy named Dave Nelson. You know, so I go knock on the door of of uh, the chairman of orthopedics right. is where they went. And this guy and he he is to this day one of the biggest influences in my life. In fact, his name was Kingsbury Hype, one of the best surgeons I've ever encountered. The audacity of this young kid 
you know, and normally you'd have to make an appointment to see him. Mean, he was world famous, this guy. I mean, he was like the top of the top. Knock on his door. Hey, Dr. Heifel, I need, I need an engineering project. What do I do? You know, he, he gets me in line. He hooks me up with this guy, Dave Nelson. And basically it, it, he was an orthopedic surgery. And I had to design a uh, machine that would move the fingers of a chicken because um, we were doing flexor tendon surgery. So what we did is we ended up operating on these chickens and I would take my girlfriend at nighttime on a Friday and she and I would operate on, on chicken fingers, literally. Sure. That's what you Sewing do. their tendons together under a microscope, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and we sew these things up under a microscope and, and that was my project. And I fell in love with orthopedic surgery because I realized, I'm like, you know what, this is mechanical engineering applied to the, to a, to a human body. And it was because of all, I mean, I probably did thousands of surgeries at night before, you know, I got into, you know, uh, residency and, and, um, and because of that experience and I fell in love with orthopedic surgery and said, you know, I, I think I can do this. And, and I kept getting a couple of pats on the back. So for example, Dave Nelson said, you know, you got pretty good hands, you know, right. your hands are pretty steady. You know, you're good with the needle. You're good with the knife. You know, then I, then I do other stuff and people would say, you know, you got good hands, you know, you really ought to think about surgery. So that little bit of encouragement combined with sort of all these planets that lined up somehow then ultimately got me from music to mechanical engineering, to biomedical engineering, to medical school, by the way, I hated, hated medical school, I <laughs> admit it, but couldn't stand medical school. And, 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 uh, and ultimately, I get in, I got into orthopedics, and I almost didn't get into orthopedics. And had I not gotten into orthopedics, I would have been a lawyer, probably. Um, but I get into orthopedics, and then, you know, the rest is kind of, you know, self plays out after I, I became a resident and, you know, decided to go into academics. I think, you know, when you, you talk about all of that, that, that college experience and trying this and trying that, I think one of the first things that I hear is two things, really. One, like you gave yourself permission to look for opportunity. And when the first thing didn't jive the way you thought it would, it, the other big thing is that you, you were able to identify like, yeah, but that's not what I want. And I think so often people get stuck in these boxes that they're not going to fit in for long. And if they do, they're miserable doing it because they never gave themselves permission to look for those opportunities and they didn't stay centered on what the heck they want to do. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, I, I think you've got to, if, if we're not flexible in our lives, emotionally, intellectually, and physically, uh, you know, you, it, 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 life becomes difficult. And, and I'll tell you, uh, going back to my friend who taught me meditation, we were talking about pain, right? And this is something I try to tell my patients and I tell my family and my kids. Pain is a physical entity that happens. It's a receptor. You know, you, you prick your, you, you put your, let me, let me step back a minute. Body centered meditation is what he would do is he would take his finger, push it into my thigh and say, feel my finger pressing into your thigh, feel the muscle, feel the heartbeat, feel my fingers pulping. When you focus on that physical sensation, that's meditative. He says, now pain is the same thing is it's a physical sensation. And if you accept the pain, you accept it and saying, this is just a knife or a needle going into my flesh. This is just a, a receptor in my joint or in my bone or in my head making me feel this. It's a, it's a, it's a mechanical event, and it's the perception of that pain that gives us what we feel as ouch, right? right. 
some people can manage that and other people and i can tell you for example women hands down toughest creatures on earth i'd <laughs> rather have patients who are 65 year old women and older than you know don't take this the wrong way but highly tatted up muscle bound 22 year old <laughs> dudes who want their mom hold their hand while their staples come up. And, and, and I tell you, this is fact. I've got guys who want to be put to sleep to get state staples taken out. And I got little old ladies who break three limbs and take Tylenol. Right, right. Right. So why is it that some people tolerate pain more than others? Right. So point being that, you know, pain is one of those things that you have to, you know, it's, it's a, it's a perception. You've got to be able to adapt. And, and if you get stuck, you know, resisting, what's happening in your life. Just like if you resist the pain and you don't accept it, life is painful. Sure. So just similar to the physical acceptance of pain. If you resist and don't adapt to what's happening in your life and look for an avenue to pick yourself back up and find a way to be happy, you're going to be miserable and you're going to be stuck. And people get in that rut. Oh, woe is me. I'm a martyr. I'm going to smoke and drink and do drugs. And, you know, they, you know, they, they, they're never finding the half is the glass is always half empty. Right. You know? So, um, as Clint Eastwood said, you know, in that movie, right? It was it Heartbreak Ridge? Adapt, improvise, and overcome. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Uh, I think I think those are the three things I taught my kids: adapt, improvise, overcome. You know, and and you got to be able to go with flow. And that's why I admire you guys so much. And I know we talked about this. You know, I I think, you know, you, you, a lot of people say, oh, you're, you're an orthopedic surgeon. I'm like, you know what? Anybody can be an orthopedic surgeon if they study hard enough and had you know had the perseverance. What you guys do in the special forces and what people have done, you know, who've accomplished great things, both physically, the combined physical and mental, to me, I look up to that as something that is much more difficult than I would aspire to do uh, that I that I haven't done and I wish I would have tried. But, you know, and, and we can get deep into comparison and, you know, how that's stealing joy and how, you know, imposter syndrome, we could go hard on that point. But the reality is like, I think all people have an aptitude for excellence. And I think I was extraordinarily fortunate to find that spot really young and excel at it. And it definitely set me up for what I do now. Um, and it's the same for you, you know, like, again, I think there's, there's excellence envy among people who are high performers sometimes because you like to put yourself in the shoes of where you, where you see excellence and go, could I, should I, would I, um, and I think that's just an appreciation factor because the reality is, you know, not just you as a human being fortunate to have found what you love to do, but for a lot of people, it's been pretty fortunate that you found what you wanted to do as well. Yeah. You know, I, I hope I could, I've helped people. I think I have patients who are grateful and, you know, the, the good part is I enjoy what I do and, you know, people, people seem to think I do a pretty good job. Uh, I try to do a good job. Of course, I want to be the best at everything, you know, so, uh, you know, if you aspire to be the best and you just get halfway, you're still better off than if, you know, you didn't aspire at all. And, and you're right. I, um, you know, I think somehow it's karma has been good to me because um, uh, it's, let me, let me step back a minute. When I was a rebellious 16 year old kid, my, uh, my dad thought I was lost obviously because I was going to be a musician then. Right. right. He had a patient who was an astrologist who did stars and he, and she made this tape. This, this makes the back of my, the hairs in the back of my head go up. And I, cause I've let people listen to this tape now. And when I listen to it now, it's, it's unbelievable, but she, she never met me. Uh, only knew my name and my date of birth and the time I was born. And, and it's a tape recording. I actually had to digitize it because it was on cassette. 
and my dad sat down and, and this lady laid out my life before him. It takes, it's about a 45 minute to an hour take, but she, here, here's some of the things that she said. Now, granted, remember, I'm 16 years old. I'm completely anti-medicine, right. rebellious kid with long hair, not drinking and partying with his friends, whose dad thinks that he's, he's, he may not make it to 18 without going to jail or death, right? This is, this is all, all she knew and my dad knew. This lady says, you know, he's got the hands of a healer. He's going to spend a good portion of his life working in a hospital. How does she know this? And right. says, she asked my dad, does he like medicine? And my dad's like, absolutely not. He hates it. She goes, you know, he's going to be good at stringed instruments. He's probably going to pick up a stringed instrument and, you know, play that. He's got musical aptitude. He's going to be good at business and he's going to be well known in his field. And he'll probably, you know, I'm, 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 I'm shortening this. Sure. He's going to be married maybe three times and he's going to have three or four children. And he's going to have an experience with, you know, somebody who's homosexual. Now, the, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to keep it PG. And here's what happened. I found out that one of my best friends in, in college was gay. I mean, we were both dating people, right? So he had a girlfriend. I had a girlfriend. We were both going out. We were best friends, you know, uh, wrestling together and doing everything. He comes out and tells me one time, you know, Hey, I got to sit down and talk to you, Bruce. You know, I'm like, what dude, you know, Hey, you know, anything. He goes, I'm gay. So how did, that's my encounter with, you know, right. the fact that I either had to accept who my best friend was, despite the fact that at the time that was not very accepted right. or lose my best friend. Right. If it's so, you know, I embraced that. He, he still, you know, to this day, I said, Chuck, you know, you, you were there for me when I needed you. You know, I, uh, I, I am not going to turn my back on you. I accept it. And it is what it is. But my point being this tape came out, you know, when I was 16 and this lady had no idea. How did she know that basically my life pretty much has played out exactly like this cassette tape has said it was going to be the number you know, of marriages, the number of kids, what I would do for a living. You know, I mean, I listened to this. I'm like, how would she know this? And I think there's something to that. I think I, I truly believe that everyone has a purpose. Um, the reason they're here. And I, I like to think that most people, like if we really boil it down, I think, humans are here to help other humans, like broad stroke. That's my response. But, you know, the reality is void of your drive and determination and your resiliency for all these. Cause that, if you gave that tape to 16 year old Bruce, you'd be like, hell no, like none of that's going to happen. You would have revolted against the idea and you, because you intentionally went yeah. after things and gave yourself permission. It did unfold in a good way for you. It, it did, but honestly, I, I kind of think that I, I have not made the decisions in my life consciously. They've been subconscious. And my dad let me listen to that tape after I was a surgeon. He goes, Bruce, I need you to listen to something. I mean, I didn't, I didn't hear this for a long time. And right. when I heard that tape, I, I thought, wow. You know, because you're right. If I would have heard that tape when I was 16, 17, 18, I probably would have revolted against it, you know, and made conscious decisions to right. go against what the plan of my life was intended to be. By not having listened to that tape, everything that happened, good and bad, all the, every failure that I've had, I think, had a purpose. Because I think uh, a failure is only a failure 
if, if you stop and you let it be a failure, it, a lot of times it's just a course uh, direction, right? It's yeah, a course exactly, correction. Yep. You know, I'm, I'm going, you know, you're going down the road. Hey, I'm on the wrong street. I got to back up and go somewhere else. If you stay in that dead end cul-de-sac and you never back up and go somewhere else, you're stuck. Right. You know, exactly. so I, I think everything that's happened to me uh, has been led by a higher power somehow. And I try to pay attention to things. So for example, you may say something to me during this podcast and, and, uh, and I, it may resonate for me. I'm like, Oh, you know what? He said something that kind of is in the back of my head. Two weeks from now, that same statement may resonate and have me do something that was part of the plan. Right. Right. Had I not paid attention to it, I would really be oblivious to it. So I, I really do think that, you know, as you said, the purpose that I was put on this earth, according to this lady, she said he's got the hands of a healer. He should, as long as he serves humanity, he will be happy and successful. And I found that every time I've tried to become selfish and get out of medicine, because there's times where I've wanted to quit and get out, trust me. Right. Um, you know, even as a resident, every time I've tried to divert from the path that I think was intended for me, I became unhappy. I had financial problems, bad things happened, you know, and whenever I would just say, you know what, I'm just going to do this because, you know, maybe this is what God wants me to do. And I may not be the best, but I'm good enough to help other people and I'll just do the best I can. You know what? Great things happen. I, I found happiness. I found love financially. My, some of my, my worries went away. You know, one time when I strayed the most, uh, she even said I would have some physical things I'd overcome. I think probably the, the worst thing that happened is I was, I was trying to get out of medicine actively, you know, about 10 years ago. I wasn't very happy with it. I thought, yeah, this is a bad profession. I need to get out and, you know, make some money. I got cancer. Oh, wow. I found out that I had lymphoma. So I have a two and a half year old kid. I'm miserable in my life. And on top of that, you know, I, I serendipitously out of the blue, don't ask again, this is the hand of God reaching down. I found out I have lymphoma. How did I find out? Well, one day I'm sitting there operating. I'm like, you know, I'm getting tired and, you know, I hate this life, and this is when bad things happen. I went and ordered a CAT scan in my head and, and chest and belly, head to toe. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to get it out of the blue because right. I was 40-some years old. You know, I look at the CAT scan, I'm like, oh. and at the time, one of our neurosurgeons, ironically, one of the best neurosurgeons I've ever known, dies of a brain tumor, right? I'm like, okay, brain surgeon dying of a brain tumor, I better check myself out. Look at my head, CT. Don't have any big goombas there, chest, no lung cancer there. Look at my abdomen, my pelvis, no bone, nothing. I'm like, okay, I'm clear. Get a call three days later from a radiologist. He says, hey, Bruce, you got cats in your house? I'm like, yeah, I got a cat. Why? He goes, you got two little lymph nodes under your arm. I'm like, yeah, so everybody's got lymph nodes, right? right? You got them in your neck, you got them in your arm, you got them in your groin. He goes, yeah, but you got two on your right, but you don't have the two, same two on your left. And I'm like, yeah, so what? You know, I'm North Beach, so I'm not... We're not terribly right, bright right. when it comes to medicine, right? So, <laughs> dude, put, put, it, put it in orthopedic need, right? He goes, well, the top three differential is toxoplasmosis, which you get from cat, an infection, or lymphoma. I'm like, okay, well, I work with my hands on the farm. I you know, cut myself. That's probably from a cut. And I got a cat, too. So, top two, oh, two, scratch, scratch. Right. Of course, the surgical mind keeps going. I finally, one thing leads to another. I get a biopsy. I'm getting it taken out. And I'm getting ready to have this thing taken out. You know, just get out of my arm, man. Just get this freaking thing out of my arm so I know what it is. The surgeon comes to me and says, uh, we're canceling surgery, Bruce. I'm like, why? This happened Chris, 23rd 
of December, right before Christmas. He goes, your flow cytometry came back as malignant, you know, follicular B-cell lymphoma. I'm like, what? You're, I thought it was a joke. Right. Long story short, you know, I'm that one, I'm that one lucky guy that probably caught the lymphoma early enough that I'm still alive today. My oncologist back then said, you need to put your affairs in order. Um, you know, you probably got about five years. We'll probably keep you alive as long as we can. And I got a two and a half year old daughter at the time. You know, that was adoring. And, uh, and, and I'm thinking, all right, you know, Jesus Christ, what, what have I, I remember the day I come up to this place where I'm at now, I go in the woods, I got a little, little lake there and it's in the middle of winter and clouds are up, you know, partially and it's freezing cold. I sit there and I, and I look up at the sky, you know, and it's cloudy and I look up and I'm swearing at God saying, what the F dude, you know, what have I done? I mean, come on, man. Have, is it because, is it because I killed that bird with a BB gun when right, I was eight right. or, you know, what, what is it, you know? What are, you, what are you doing to me? What did I not do? What did I do wrong? What I, you know, I dropped to my knees and I'm thinking, okay, you know, it is what it is. You win. I basically look up and say, you win. I give up. Sun comes out, whether that's coincidence or not, whether it means something or not, I don't know. But at, at the end of the day, I think that's when I said, you know, at least, at least I did something good with my life as a surgeon and help people. And I don't know if maybe the karma kind of kicked in or maybe that was a lesson for me to, Hey, get your shit together, boy, right. and, you know, straighten up and stop being such a crybaby about life and, you know, just do what you're supposed to do. Basically stop resisting, right? Don't resist, stop resisting the pain in your life and get on with it and do what you were supposed to do. And, you know, I'm alive today, 10 years later, this is actually, you know, in December, this is going to be a 10-year anniversary, knock on wood. I get scanned every every so often. I'm clear, you know, aside from the old person things that, you know, most people get with arthritis, right. you know, but for the fact that, you know, I was that lucky guy. And I'll tell you, uh, this is something I you and I talked about yesterday or the other day, but, you know, when people who actually face death and think they're going to die, it's just who they are. Right. You know, when, you know, it, it, I don't know if you remember that movie, The Deer Hunter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that that scene where they where, where they're captured, and they're playing Russian roulette, and the guy saying "mao mao 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 to mao," and he they put one bullet in there, and the and the uh, and the VC are killing, actually catches the bullet. You know, they spin the they spin the uh, the gun. So here you are, you got a gun to your head, and you think you're gonna die, right? You pull the trigger, and it's click. You don't die. Right. What goes through your head at that moment when all of a sudden you, when you think you're going to die, but you don't. I mean, in those and moments, think, you know, it's, it's, you know, for me, it was you do that things. immediate inventory. Like what did I do with it when I had it and was it enough? And I think, you know, a lot of people get stuck in this like catastrophizing mindset of it's all happening to me. The, why is this happening to me? The universe is happening to me. I, I think if we're being honest, the universe is happening. You're just in it. And you can, you're the yeah. only one that can impact yeah. how you interact with it. So go happen to the universe instead of freaking out about how it's happening to you. Go impact the universe. I, you know, I, I got to remember what you just said there. I said, go happen to the universe. I like that. I'm going to use that one. That's a, another very profound and eloquent, <laughs> eloquent statement you've made that I'm going to take away from this. Uh, go happen to the universe. That's a, that, that's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely, you're, you're right. Is, uh, is is you've got to do what you were meant to do, and and I think that 
again, you know, what when you when you realize that we're all going to die, right? I mean, you start dying the day you're born. Yep. It's uh, and, and this sounds corny. This it really sounds corny, you know. But I I, I really I think now it, I finally makes makes sense to me. Do the best that you can with your life. I mean, you got one life, and it, and you don't realize it when you're young because you don't realize you're more tired. But I think when you start seeing your parents and uncles and friends start dying, or when you witness death in your friends, as as you guys do, or when I see death every day, and somebody who got up one morning making plans to be with their family that weekend. out of the blue a car and it makes me think when is it going to be my turn right and i'm going to get crushed in a car accident and die you know i had my brush with death with something that wasn't so sudden you know it was you know cancer is a much slower process uh as opposed to you know getting smashed by a car um but you know you, as you said you take inventory and and i think that's when i decided that you know i don't care what people think of me. All I care about is, did I try hard enough to be a good person, to do a good job, to be a good father, to be a good partner, to be a good friend. And you know what? I'll, I'll let somebody take advantage of me if they need to. Maybe they needed to do that. As long as it doesn't harm me or my family permanently. Yeah. You know what? Maybe they ripped me off. Maybe I paid a little bit too much for that, you know, contractor, right. or maybe that, you know, you know, that patient, you know, that patient didn't pay their bill. For example, we get that a lot. I don't keep track of that. That's why, you know, when I do trauma, you know, we're salaried. Uh, what I love about trauma is that I never have to go to bed at night thinking, should I or should I not have done that certain? Right, know, right. You break your leg, I got to fix it. You know, it's it's not like a, a elective arthroscopy for, you know, or, or something where you may or may not need surgery for your back. You know, so, and, if, and because I'm salaried, you know, I don't get paid the most. I don't get paid the least you know we get a fair wage for a fair day's work you know we're well paid for what we do but you know i i don't i don't ever ever ask if a patient has insurance or not everybody who comes in gets treated the same and this is what i used to tell my residents if you treat your patients like you would want to be treated pretend that was your mother your father your brother your sister your wife what would you want to happen to them right right if 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 you do for them what you would want for your own family you're doing the right thing absolutely and you know it's one of those things too like I, I think that mindset that you've got where you want to do the very best and having that introspective thought process where you've taken the inventory and you, you understand what you really want to accomplish from living is having that impact and bettering people's lives. I think it's one of the things that has driven you to continue to innovate. I mean, you're doing stuff now, like just, we have a mutual friend and, um, you guys have this product called the X fit. That's actually in the second variation right now. I actually had the pleasure of coming out and demoing with you at one point. And I think, I think the genesis of that starts with that. What the hell do I really want to do? Yeah. You know, it's, it's the MacGyver in all of us, right? We, we all want to, we all want to solve problems. We all want to be, you know, do something good. And, you know, when you see an opportunity to improve on things or solve a problem, um, you know, it was fortuitous, it, you know, our, our mutual friend and I met, you know, because I'd heard about him. Um, but it wasn't until somebody left my region that he came in and I met him and everyone said, oh, you'll like him. You'll like him. You'll really like him. And you know what? 
he's he's one of one of the one of the one of the best you know guys the best people I think I've met in my life and so what happened was you know I'm I'm designing stuff for the civilian world uh, you know medical devices and you know I'm into designing my tinkering side you know and you know along comes uh, you, uh, can I mention his name yeah go for it Kelly yep. yeah yeah so along comes Kelly and and he uh, you know and he's talking about you know he, he and you want to talk about modest and humble. Uh, I nicknamed him Rambo because I'm like, this dude really was Rambo, you know? Oh, hundred percent. You know, he goes to, yeah, you know, it was Delta Forest, you know, I was, I was this, you know, so like he talks about the green brain. I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? You, you, every time I talk to you, I learn something new about what you've done. And, you know, he's, as I got to know him more and more and more, I mean, he's got an incredible accomplishing story of his life and what he's done. And anyway, you never know it because he's just so, just humble, modest right. guy. Anyway. He's like, yeah, you know, this would be, we, it would be really great if we could do something for the special forces and the military. And, you know, I was, that was my, as I told you the other day, my big regret was, you know, not signing up for the military right out of high school when I could physically do it. So I joined the Navy as a reservist in between wars. I never was able to put, you know, anything, you know, any of my talents to use for our soldiers, which is what I really, really wanted to do also. That would have been great to be in the military, then go to medical school, then become an orthopedic right. surgeon and then combine the two so that I could do, you know, that. So the best I did was go to launch stool, you know, and, and do some volunteer work there. You know, I think it was during, you know, one of the Fallujahs, but it made me realize, you know, where, you know, how, how much of an impact have on our soldiers by bringing some innovation into the, you know, soldier realm. Now, granted, most of the stuff that they use in the military or the realm is civilian based, right? Right. So it's basically they buy civilian stuff and then they apply it, in, in, you know, to orthopedic injuries. Well, what Kelly did, they listen, you know, why not? Design something that military make it, make it soldier. So he was a tinkerer too. And we basically took the sectional fix and, and we, and he said, make it, what, what do you guys call it when you take something apart? You call it rat effing something. Yeah, right? you got a rat eff it. You get something, you take it apart, and you put it in your pack. So you get you got a rat eff it, right? So we basically rat after the next fix, and Kelly and I tinkered around with it, and we, we said make it lighter and this and that. And so sure enough, you know, we went to the you know soldiers and said, what would you combat medics? What would you guys out there? What do you need? What do you need when you're out there, you know, with gloves on and there's blood everywhere, bullets and lead flying over there and there's chaos? What is it that will help you help that injured soldier so that you can more effectively get them off the battlefield and into a, into care? And, and so Kelly was very good at this. And we took all his feedback in. And basically where we are now is, you know, we're, we're coming up with something that is going to be specifically designed to help the combat medic you know, effectively do what they do in the middle of chaos. And if it's good enough for that, you sure as heck know it's going to be good enough for me, you know, in a controlled setting of, of the civilian world, right? Right. And I think that's so, one of those uh, things too, so like, you know, you that, guys are designing a, something for the absolute worst case scenario. Like that, that thing you described where you're in the middle yes. of a, uh, you know, a complex ambush and you've got something to the front and to the rear and your buddy's hurt and you got to stabilize and package and get him out of there to higher echelon of care. If it works there, Oh, what a work on an ambulance, you know? Yeah, yeah for sure. Sure. And, and you know, I, what, what I love about it is it, 
is it satisfies all of the needs that, you know, people like you and I and Kelly have. We're, we're helping the good guys, number one, the really good guys, right? Our, I mean, as you say, freedom is not free. And, uh, and we have the greatest military that mankind has ever known. And, and I, we can get into why and how and what I've witnessed, you know, when I was in Launchville. Number two, it satisfies our tinkering ability where we want to innovate and solve a problem that exists out there right now. Three, it, it, it aligns with our skill set and maybe what our path in life was meant to be. I mean, Kelly and I met probably for this reason, because we're so excited about this project right. that, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're committing a lot of our personal funds to this. I mean, this is all personally funded on our and part. I think and, the uh, real magic, because it ties together really, so well is, you know, cause I've known Kelly for a long time <clears throat> and Kelly comes with his own, you know, linear line of wants, intentionalities, and morals, things that are important to him that are just centrically Kelly. And so does Bruce. And when those two things yes. came together and paralleled in such an amazing way, that's when magic happens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We're excited. We're, we're really excited about it. And, uh, and, 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 and I think if, if we can, if we can save one soldier's leg in the future, could be my kid, could be my son, you know, for all I know, you know, who, who joins the military. If, if we could save one leg from all the efforts we're making because somebody got this fixator on fast enough that they could get him off the battlefield and save that leg, it, it would be worth it. If we could save one life, even better, you know, I mean, heck, you know, saving a, you can, you can live without a leg. I always tell a lot of patients, you know, who, who lose their body parts. I'm like, you know, you're, it's okay to lose a leg. It's okay to lose an arm. I said, you know, you, you, you're going to make it. You'll find happiness again if you want to. You know, you'll be more miserable if, if something else happened, you know. But, uh, but if we could save one, one arm, one leg, one life out of it, you know, all our efforts would be worth it. Because let me tell you, what, one, of the, one of the hardest things that I did, another moving moment, is when I was up in uh, Ramstein and Launch School, it, it was, you know, they kept coming in. You know, I mean, it's 24-7 there. So, right. you know, I'd go there. I was sort of a civilian volunteer at the time. I wasn't part of the military, but they let, you know, my Navy background a little bit let me in with the guys. And and so, um, you know, I'm working with these uh, surgeons who are there, many of which were young, freshly, you know, graduated. I had 10 years experience. I mean, they were reading my papers. Right. And I was lecturing to them in the civilian world. world. But I go to Lounge Stool, and I'll never forget Jim Jim Montner. He's, he's a great guy, great surgeon. He goes, so Dr. Zoran, he just graduated from residency. He goes, so uh, Dr. Zoran, you're here. Uh, so, you know, looks like uh, all those papers and all the lectures you did back in the civilian world looks like here, though, you're my bitch. Because, <laughs> you know, he you know, and, and we hit it off right away. And of course, you know, you know, I'm the civilian, so they, they run the show, but we were getting these people coming in 24 seven. I mean, and let me, this, I give a lecture on this to the people in the civilian role. And I say, let me tell you how great our military is. You got a soldier who's in the battlefield who gets injured at six o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, right? Gets an IED, you know, gets a bunch of body parts, you know, blasted. He goes to, he goes to a uh, blood he gets opened up he gets a laparotomy he gets washed out he gets the next fix he goes you know gets resuscitated he gets his life saved that afternoon he's on a he's on a transport right and and uh, he, he goes from the battlefield one hour later you know to the, to the second echelon two hours later he's in the third echelon in blood getting opened up and fixed right 
then six hours later, he's on he's on a CCAT going up to Ramstein Air Force Base, which we get him at 11 o'clock at night. We take him in at 12 o'clock, wash him out. And, you know, the, the medical records weren't very good. So what they would do is they would take tape and write with uh, indelible marker, you know, on the ACE bandages, what happened and right. what time everything was. So we'd wash him out at one o'clock in the morning, 5 a.m., that same guy would get back on another plane and go get into Walter Reed or Brook Army. So within 36 hours, you've got a guy who's had three or four operations go from halfway across the world into a safe place where, where he survives and recovers. No other military, no other country has been able to accomplish that. Right. Not even close. That tells you how, how, how you know, despite all the problems that we may think we have – I witnessed that happen. And, and the other thing that would happen is the organization of how it happened is, you know, when they come off those sea cats, you know, they, they bring the critically injured, then the walking wounded. And then, you know, the people, you know, who are, who are even observing and believe it or not, the dogs, Yep. injured dog would come up. Everyone would stand there and salute the dog with the rake. I mean, it's, it's very moving to see that. And so, uh, I, I don't know. We digressed on a lot, but I, I got I, I, this was a really important event in my life going up to launch school and seeing this. So I get all excited about it because it had such a uh, impact on me. So I, I forget what we were talking about. I apologize. You know, what? it's a, it's a perfect it's a perfect wrap up spot, to be honest with you, because, you know, that experience you had and that that big scale of, you know, from what we say flash to bang. Like so that the incident happens and now I'm in Walter Reed, that 30 to 36 hour window that exists today in the way that it does because people like you from all walks of life decided here's what I want to do. I'm open to innovation. I'm looking for opportunity. I'm going to impact the universe how I can. And it's made that the most highly functioning thing in the military. So you're just as much a part of that as everybody else. And it's people like you who are open to these opportunities and, and going after that, that whole thing with intentionality that make it possible. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm grateful and honored to be able to help in any little way. And, you know, I, I still don't know what my legacy in life is going to be, but I think at the, I set my bar pretty low, is, which is, you know, raise some good children to be good citizens of the world, you know, and try to help, you know, uh, you know this, this is a great country with great people in it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that my dad came to this country with $40 in his pocket instead of, you know, going somewhere else, because had he not done that, uh, I would not have the life I have today. And as Tim Russert says, you know, I, I don't know if you remember him, the older I get, the smarter my dad becomes. Right. Yep. That, 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 you know, rings very true. And it's not just that it's mom too. So, I mean, I don't want to leave my mother out of it because she sacrificed a whole hell of a lot too. Oh, she got you back so, into the house. Uh, I think You're... maybe what I would say. Yeah, she did. <laughs> she did. Yeah. But I think probably what I, the better way to say it is the smarter I get, I mean, the, the older I get, the more, the smarter my parents become. And that's probably a, a more valid statement, you know, and, uh, and that's why I, I honor them to this day. They're still alive and doing great at 80 to 85 and 89. God bless them. Well, sir, I appreciate you coming on. I really enjoyed it. Uh, any final thoughts, things that you want people to know? Uh, no, just thank you very much. I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm honored. And uh, frankly, I, I, my story doesn't seem very, interesting compared to all the other stories that I've seen and witnessed and friends of mine. So uh, thank you for 
for the time. I really enjoyed it. And uh, above all else, thank you for what you've done for your country too, because I wouldn't be here without guys like you. Well, and a lot of us wouldn't be here if it weren't for guys like you. So thank you, sir. It's a good team. All right, folks, there you have it. That was my interview with the incredible Dr. Bruce Rand. I told you at the beginning that he is an amazing human being. Uh, I think it's fun to think about if I had to have a trauma surgeon that someone with that great of a personality would be fixing me. So that's something that I always take away from my interactions with him is like, he's just got a great personality, great sense of humor, and just an awesome mindset, which was really a big takeaway from, I mean, you know, just listen to the story. Like, Oh, let's not try that. That's not working. We'll try something else like that. What's next attitude has really helped him get where he's at. And so if nothing else, I hope you took that away from it. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I will talk to you next time. Nice to be in orbit.